1871, Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago. He was also a devout Presbyterian elder. His wife was Anna, and they had four children. He was trying to do well by his family, and there was some land in Chicago that uh, looked like a great investment opportunity. And so he took all the money that they could spare and invested it in that real estate. It was later that year that the great Chicago fire of 1871 occurred, and it went through the property that he had invested all of his money in, and he lost every bit of the investment that they had made, and it was quite devastating to his family financially. Two years later, he and his wife, Anna, decided that they wanted to take a vacation, and they had the opportunity to go to Europe, and they wanted to take their four daughters to visit England, and so they bought tickets on a ship and were ready to go when Horatio received news from his work that he needed to stay behind and take care of some things before he could cross over, but they had already bought their tickets, so his wife and four daughters went ahead, and he said he would catch the next ship that he could and meet them over there. As they were making their trek across the Atlantic, another vessel um, rammed into the side of their ship, and this ship was much larger than than the one that they were on, and uh, it was devastating to their ship, and uh, Horatio's four daughters were drowned. His wife was found on some debris floating in the water, unconscious. But she did survive. And when she had the opportunity, she sent a cable to her husband. And the cable said, saved alone, what shall I do? When we look in Habakkuk, we look at a man who received some devastating news himself and was trying to deal with that news as best he could. God had revealed to him that he was going to bring about judgment on Habakkuk's people because of their sin, and that this judgment would be by means of an invading nation, and this nation was a cruel nation, and they were very strong, much stronger than Habakkuk's people, and known for their uh, just uh, prowess in battle and also... Um, sheer lack of uh, humanity as they dealt with uh, the people that they attacked. And so it was going to be a very difficult time for Habakkuk's people. And it's interesting as we look at this passage in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see his working through trying to deal with this information that he received from the Lord. Habakkuk by nature, appears to have been a complainer and is very much a part of who he was. I'm sure we don't have any people here today that are complainers, but um, he was a complainer. Uh, when he, we first see him, he prays to God. He's complaining to God because God's not doing anything and he thinks that God should be doing something. And so he's complaining about God about what he's not doing. 
then God replies to him and says, no, I am going to do something. And he tells Habakkuk what he's going to do. And when Habakkuk hears what God is going to do, then he complains at God about how he's going to do what he's going to do. So he's complaining that he doesn't do anything. And then when God says, I am going to do something, well, he's not happy about that as well. And so he's a complainer. And yet when we look in Habakkuk chapter 3, we see him moving at the beginning of this chapter and moving to the end and really coming to the place of trust and faithful submission to his Lord and moving from a spirit of complaining to a spirit of faithful obedience and submission to the will of his heavenly father. So this morning, as we look at this passage, there are three parts to it, really. It begins with a prayer. In the middle, it's followed by a song. And then it concludes with a declaration by this man of God, Habakkuk. And so let's look at the prayer in verses 1 and 2 in Habakkuk 3. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I think it's important for us to take note who prayed this prayer. It was Habakkuk, this man of God. And it is important to recognize that it is this godly man, although he he did deal with his attitude a lot. He was still a godly man, and the things that he was concerned about, he was concerned that uh, God would do what he believed God would do. And so he, he had very good intentions, and, and he trusted in the Lord. And it is, it is this godly man who is praying this prayer. And we notice here he is praying for revival. You see in the middle of verse 2, O Lord, revive your work. I started preaching, preached my first sermon when I was 18 years old. And uh, I would preach in uh, the local association of churches where I lived in Dayton, Ohio. And I would substitute, I would be what they called a pulpit supply and uh, fill in for um, pastors many times. And I had one sermon and I preached that one sermon everywhere I went and uh, it was a really big deal, and it took some time before someone actually asked me to come back a second time, but that was good. I thought that's a good sign uh, that they'll have me come back. But in that sermon I preached, I would ask this question, and I asked this of a great number of people as I preached uh, in a number of churches. First question I asked is, how many of you believe that America needs to see revival? Oh, man. Hands went up quickly. Here we got some here. That's right. Quickly. America needs revival. And uh, they were ready to go with that. Then I'd ask the second question. Well, how many of you believe that the church in America needs revival? Again, man, bam, fast. They were just raised. Yes, America needs revival. It's probably the third question that I asked, though, that may have had something to do with my not being asked to come back. Because the third question I ask is, how many of you believe you need revival? That you need to repent of your sin. That you need to come clean before God. And you need a fresh anointing of God's spirit in your life. And his work to be done in your life. And to recognize your need 
to be the person of God that God's called you to be. And it's interesting how in churches all across America, we will see people who will very quickly acknowledge that we need to see revival. We want a spiritual renewal. We want an act of God happen in America or, or happen in our churches. But we need to understand that revival starts with us, God's people. And it's interesting here is Habakkuk prays it is the man of God. And the Bible teaches that revival comes when God's people humble themselves and pray. Very familiar passage to many of us states this in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. The Lord speaking says, if I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven will forgive their sin and heal their land. It is God's people that God calls to humble themselves and pray for revival, to pray that God would send revival. And the question I have is how many of us really have a desire to see revival so much so that we will humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face for revival? I think another problem that we might have is we miss in our prayer life how we should go about praying for revival. If you'll notice here, notice what he says. In verse 2 again, he says, O Lord, revive your work and make it known. This morning I want to ask you, when you pray, whose agenda do you pray? I know from time to time, there have been way too many times when I go to the Lord in prayer... I have my agenda. And certainly, my agenda must be God's agenda, right? And so I take my agenda and say, God, this is what you need to do. And I start working through this and saying, God, now this is, this is what you want. Of course you want this because this is what I want. And we are shocked when we don't see God work the way we think that he should work. And it's because many of us we go to God wanting God to revive our work and make us known as opposed to revive his work and make himself known. And we have our agenda set before him when really it ought to be that we are praying that his agenda be done, that he would, would revive his work, and that is our desire. We read passages like, for instance, in Proverbs 16, Verses 2 and 3, where the Bible says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. And when we look at a passage like that, many of us, our eyes go to that last phrase, and your plans will be established, and we ask the question, what must I do so I can get my plans established? And we automatically go before God with my agenda, with what I want. This is about me when it says to commit your works to the Lord. That our desire and our focus needs to be toward him. 
When actually, many times we're asking the question, just what do I have to do so I can get what I want? Or we go to passages like Psalm 37, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. Well, again, my eyes will often go to, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So what do I have to do to delight in the Lord and commit to him and trust him so I can get the desires of my heart? When in actuality, what the psalmist is saying is that the Lord himself should be the desire of our hearts. That he should be the one that we delight in. That he is the one that we look to. And so when we look at this prayer of revival, it is a prayer saying, Lord, revive your work. Revive your work and make it known. It's not about my work. It's not about my agenda. It's not about making me known. But it's about you. We also see here when he prayed this prayer. He prayed it in the face of approaching judgment. Now, there are difficulties in life. Sometimes difficulties come as a result of God's discipline in our lives because of sin. Sometimes difficulty comes because we just live in a difficult world, that we live in a fallen world, that there are difficult things to deal with. Sometimes it's because someone else has done something. But there are difficulties in life, and he is praying in the face of difficulty, but he's praying in the face of recognition that this difficulty is happening as a result of the sin of Habakkuk and his people. And so he prays this prayer. At the end of it, he says, at the end of verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. It's interesting how many of us as believers, we will talk a lot about God's grace, which is good. It's good that we sing about it and, and talk about it and remember it, that God would give us what we don't deserve. That in Christ, we have eternal life as a gift. That we have his forgiveness. That we are made children of God, adopted into his family. And all of these things given to us freely and yet not deserved. That's God's grace. But some of us have trouble recognizing our need for mercy. Because mercy is saying that God does not do to us what we deserve to have done to us. And we have trouble with thinking about mercy because in order for us to truly understand mercy, that means that we understand that we truly are deserving of God's wrath. It's an understanding that we are sinners. It's an understanding that as we see in the New Testament where it says the wages of sin is death, that we recognize that, yes, we are sinners and we deserve God's wrath. We deserve death, but therefore we want God's mercy. And I think we struggle with this because a lot of us, we just don't think our sin's all that bad. I mean, we'll acknowledge we have a few issues, but those people over there, they have a lot more issues. And so, just on the spectrum of things, it's not a big deal. And so, it's difficult for, uh, for some of us 
to pray that God would show his mercy and wrath because we really don't think that we have any kind of problem with sin in the first place. And yet, revival will not take place unless God's people humble themselves and recognize that we are sinners and we are in desperate need, not only of God's grace, but we are in desperate need of God's mercy. And that in his, his, his wrath, that this is what we need. Well, he has met that need. He has met that need in his son, Jesus Christ. And it reminds me of a song that uh, I've sung many times growing up. And the words go like this. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me, he died on Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. We need God's mercy And it's good that we have a God who is merciful. And he has wedded grace and mercy at Calvary in his son, Jesus Christ. And he took our punishment as he took on our sin and our guilt on the cross. And he became the curse for us so that we would no longer be under the curse. He took on sin so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. This is what he has done. And so as we pray for revival, may it be that we recognize that it is God's work that needs revived. And recognize that we are in need of God's mercy. Because apart from God's grace and mercy... We are lost. But thanks be to God, through his grace and mercy, we have salvation and deliverance and life. And so, a prayer for revival. Secondly, if you look at verse 3 through verses, verses 3 through 15, we see a song. It's a song of remembrance. And here Habakkuk, as he is received word from the Lord of this devastating event to come with the Babylonians invading his nation, he looks back and remembers God's deliverance of his people. And he remembers three particular instances in their history where God showed himself strong to save and deliver his people. The first was at the Exodus. Remember, The children of Israel, they were in Egypt and they had been in bondage for many, many years. And God, by his strength and his outstretched arm, he redeemed them and he brought them out of bondage into liberty and purchased their freedom and brought them into covenant relationship with him and made a people of them, his people, his covenant people. And this was the exodus And then we see also, not only does he mention the Exodus, but he mentions 
the wanderings in the, the wilderness or in the desert. And we know that after they had crossed the Red Sea that they spent 40 years in the wilderness or desert and that God provided for them, that he, he protected them and that he was with them all during that time. And then the third instance that he in this song poetically um, speaks of and describes is their conquest of the promised land that they finally went in and possessed the land that God had promised his people. And what a wonderful thing to remember that this God who saved them out of bondage provided for them and cared for them in the wilderness, in the desert, and finally brought them home to their promised land and was with them and defeated their enemies and saved them when it looked like they had no chance that God saved them and intervened. And he remembered this salvation. And it's for this reason he says, for instance, in verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. Yes, he remembered what God had done for his people in the past. It's important for us to sometimes remember in the past so that we can recognize that the God who has been faithful in our past and who has delivered us and helped us over many times is the same God who is true today and the same God that we can trust eternally. And it is good for us to sometimes remember what he has done. David did this in 2 Samuel 22, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Think about this. What do we have to remember? We have to remember that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came... He lived a perfect life and then he was taken to a cross and he died in our place. He took our sin on him. He took our place and he died for us so that we might have life in him. This is what our Savior has done for us. And it is good for us to remember this. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not through him freely give us all things? It is good for us to remember what he has done to recognize that that same God who has fully invested, who has done more than any, anyone could ever do by giving his own son and by Jesus Christ offering himself for us, that he has done this. How can we not trust that God? How can we not recognize that that God who has done what he has done to save us is the same God who is faithful today and for eternity? And so he is faithful. 
it is good for us to remember God's salvation and what he has done for us. It's good to remember his faithfulness. I have a brother who's nine years older than me, and uh, we, um, uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I remember when uh, I was in third grade, um, I would walk to school, and uh, our school was really just across the street. It wasn't much of a walk at all. The driveway was a little bit of a distance, but uh, um, just walked across, and it was probably um, five, ten-minute walk uh, to get from my front door to the front door of the school. And my next-door neighbor was in my class, and so we'd meet at the end of our driveway, and we'd walk across the road together and head into school. Now, it would seem like it was an easy trip, except for one thing. The junior high bus stop was at the end of the driveway for the elementary school. And every time my friend and I would cross the road, they they would start, these 14 and 15-year-olds, we're nine years old, they would start to throw rocks at us and call us all sorts of names, come and knock our books out of our hands and it was just a harrowing experience every day going to school. It was not fun at all. And we were scared as we were walking across there. And uh, we, we were just, sometimes we'd give it a good run, you know, and see if we could make it that way. And we'd talk strategy, but it, it was tough. Well, one day I remember we were getting ready to cross and we were crossing over and it all began. They were hurling their insults and throwing their rocks and, and coming up, pushing us around And uh, I didn't know this, but my brother, who was a senior, 18 years old, who was very athletic, he was in the strength training, uh, lifted a lot of weights, and um, was president of his class. He happened to be coming out of our house at that time, getting in his car to drive to school. And I guess he witnessed what was going on with me and my buddy as we were trying to get across the road to school. All I remember is this, that my brother was all of a sudden face to face with the leader of that clan of rock throwers. And um, while there is a big difference in a 15-year-old and a 9-year-old, there's also a pretty good difference between an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old. My brother had muscles, that kid did not, and he was much taller than him. And I remember my brother coming up to him very close. I mean, it was like that distance away and looking down at him. Now, I don't remember exactly what my brother said. I was kind of in a daze seeing all this happen. But I got the gist of the conversation. My brother told him, if you mess with my brother, it will be bad for you. That was the gist of it. And he left. We went on to school. So the next day... My friend and I, we got together, we crossed the road, and as we're walking by them, we're like, yeah, yeah, what are you going to do about this, you know? And we were just enjoying that. Third grade was wonderful after that. We always got a good day, start to our day, and it was wonderful. No more problems with that. You know, we have a Savior. We have a Deliverer who is strong, who is bigger than any of our problems or difficulties. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you have tribulations. Take heart. I am greater than these tribulations. I am bigger than that. 
I've overcome the world. He's overcome. He's bigger. He's stronger. And he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. And it's good for us to remember what he has done so that we can know that we can trust him now and that we can trust him in the future. And this is what Habakkuk was doing. He was remembering what God had done. And the question comes, do we remember like we should? Well, there was a prayer of revival, or for revival rather, and then the song of remembrance. And then finally, it ends with this declaration of resolve. If you look at verse 16, as he ends this section, his message, he says, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord, my, uh, Lord God, in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. For the choir director on my strained instruments. As we look at this, it's interesting what he says. He's very open about how distressed he is about what is about to happen. But in the midst of this difficulty that he's facing, he resolves to continue doing two things. One, he resolves to continue worshiping the Lord. He's going to worship him, regardless of what happens. And secondly, he's going to continue trusting in the Lord, trusting him no matter what happens. I wonder about us this morning. I think sometimes some of us in the church, we've bitten into this idea that God is in existence just to meet our every whim. Whatever I want, that's what he's supposed to do. God is there just to make me happy. And we need to recognize that the resolve that Habakkuk had really is somewhat of a foreshadowing of the resolve that Jesus had. You remember Jesus in the garden? He's looking forward to knowing that they're going to arrest him, they're going to beat him, and they're going to execute him in a horrific way. And he even prays, Lord, if there's any other way, remove this. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. And the scripture later tells us that he looked forward with joy to the cross because he knew the result that would come from that. The result that we would come to saving faith and that we would have life in him because of his willingness to go to the cross. See, God hasn't called us to...
to be upwardly mobile and to have a whole bunch of stuff and to get our wish list laid out. He has called us to be followers of Christ. And sometimes the best way we can demonstrate our faith in Christ and his faithfulness is by our attitude and our approach to difficult times in our lives. To recognize that in those moments, God gives us an opportunity to be a witness to this lost world like we may not ever have in any other circumstance. And that we are called to that same faithfulness that we see in Habakkuk and that we have seen in our Lord, that we are called to that as well, to his glory. No strings attached. Well, when Horatio Spafford received the message from his wife, he made arrangements to get on the very next ship he could to head over to England to meet up with her. And the story goes that when he got to the place in the Atlantic where the tragic accident happened, where his daughters drowned, it is there that he penned the following words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Some final thoughts. First of all, revival begins with the people of God. God has said, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. And and Habakkuk recognized that. And when he prayed, he prayed that God would revive his work. And so I ask you, do you really want revival? And do you want God to revive his work? It begins with us. And that should be our prayer, that he revive his work. And that we want his agenda to be carried out. Also, what do you need to remember from your past as you face present and future difficulties? I can tell you one thing that it needs to begin with is remember, if you're a believer, that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He died and rose again and lives today. And that's a good place for us to start when we remember what God has done for us in the past. And everything else makes sense when we begin to remember that. And then thirdly, 
How is your resolve in facing difficulty? Are you resolved to truly continue worshiping God without any strings attached? To trust him without any strings attached? To have the kind of faith that Habakkuk had, to have the kind of resolve that our Savior had toward his Heavenly Father on our behalf, to have the resolve to say that I am going to be faithful and I am going to trust him because you are worthy and you are trustworthy and that is what I'm going to do. To have that kind of walk. Well, that's what we're called to and that is what we need to be about as God's people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your word and how it is powerful, how it will always achieve its purpose as it is proclaimed. So, Father, we pray that we would be truly receptive and that we would apply it to our lives and that we would proclaim it faithfully to others, to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.